morning, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Glad you came out on this rainy day for those of you who are here in person, and welcome to everyone online. Let's go ahead and open up in a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for all you've done. We want to thank you for your marvels. We want to thank you for the rain that you're sending to nourish the earth. And Father, as we prepare to talk about Tu Bishvat today, we, we will see how important rain is. So Father, we thank you for that. And we just ask that you would open our hearts and help us to understand what you're trying to communicate to us through this holiday. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, we all know that the Lord commanded various feasts for us in his word. Those of us in the Messianic movement are very familiar with what those are. We start out with Passover, which we just read about in our weekly Parsha readings. That's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then Shavuot, and so forth into the fall holidays. We also see some feasts that are in Scripture. They're not biblically mandated, but they're there. For example, Hanukkah and Purim. But guess what? There are also some festivals and holidays that are not in Scripture. You will not find them but they're still observed by many people in the Jewish community as well as the Messianic community. One of those is what we'll be talking about this morning, and that's the minor feast of Tu Bishvat, which is also known as the New Year for Trees, and we'll talk about why in a few moments. And I'm really excited to be here this morning to talk with you about this festival, because even though we re there's really very little known about it outside of the nation of Israel, there are some very important lessons for those of us in the Messianic movement. This holiday falls on the 15th day of the biblical month of Shavuot, and this year it will begin tomorrow evening, Sunday, January 20th, at sunset. And it will end on Monday evening at sunset, January 21st. Simply put, yes, thank you. Here comes my thing I can drive and change bit, uh, the screens. Thank you. So simply put, this is a time where we thank God for the earth and the produce of the land of Israel. In putting this teaching together, I gathered sources from a number of places. The primary one is a book called Plant. The subtitle is Nurturing, Repairing, Providing, Giving and that is produced by First Fruits of Zion. And I hope you'll find the information that I've gathered this morning from that book as well as from a number of websites encouraging, and it will give you the information you need in order to appreciate this little-known holiday. As I mentioned earlier, Tu Bishvat is typically known as the New Year for Trees. And that description can be a little confusing at times when we talk about a new year. As Rabbi Scott mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are multiple new years in the biblical calendar. So I want to talk quickly about what those are and get that out of the way so you understand why there are at least four different new years mentioned in the scripture. Nisan 1 marks the beginning of the exodus from Egypt for the ancient Israelites, and it's the start of the biblical new year. It usually falls in the early spring, typically around April, and it's considered to be the start of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, although years are actually counted from the first day of Tishri, which is the seventh month. Hope I don't have you confused there. Scripture 
Um, scriptures that set this date as the new year include Exodus 12.2. This month will mark the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. We also see that in Deuteronomy 16.1, to observe the month of Aviv, and Aviv is just another name, name for Nisan, and keep the Passover to Adonai your God. For in the month of Aviv, Adonai your God brought you out from Egypt by night. So, Passover marks the first New Year in the Bible. The second is the first day of Elul, which is the sixth month of the Hebrew calendar. That usually occurs in late summer, usually August. And according to the Mishnah, this was the new year for animal tithes and was used to determine the start date for the animal tithe to the priestly class in ancient Israel. Think of it like our tax day of April 15th here in the US. Although it is generally no longer observed, remember there's no temple, it does mark the beginning of preparation for the festival of Rosh Hashanah. And that brings us to the third new year, which is in the, it's the first day of the month of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah. That's the one we're the most familiar with. And it falls on the first day of the seventh month, obviously. And that usually occurs within the month of September. It's the day when the Jewish calendar year advances and is traditionally seen as the date when the world was created. In ancient times, it was also used for calculating certain tithes, such as those for vegetables, and for calculating the start of sabbatical and jubilee years when the land was left fallow. Numbers 29, verses 1 and 2 tells us, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a sacred assembly. You are to do no laborious work. It is for you a day for sounding the shofar, you are to prepare a burnt offering as a pleasing aroma to Adonai. One young bull from the herd, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old without flaw. Then we read in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Speak to B'nai Yisrael, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you are to have a Shabbat rest a memorial of blowing, the shafarot, a holy convocation. That brings us to the fourth new year, which is the one we're talking about this morning, to Bishvat, the 15th day of Shabbat. It's considered the New Year's Day for trees, and it usually falls in either January or February. Although we do not see this holiday in the scripture, the Torah does command that fruit from the trees less than three years old cannot be consumed. So this was the date that was set by the sages for determining the ages of the trees. Obviously, you have to know how old they are. And so we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And unlike the first of Elul, which is typically no longer recognized as a, as a new year, Tu Bishvat is still widely observed as a minor Jewish holiday. Tubishvat is celebrated both within Israel and beyond, primarily by the planting of trees, hence the new year of trees. Jewish people who cannot plant trees will often donate money so that trees can be planted on their behalf. In Israel, school children will take field trips to the mountains to plant trees. 
And it may sound a little strange to be planting trees in the middle of winter instead of waiting until springtime. But even though it's still cold here in almost all of the areas of the U.S., and in fact here in the southeast, we're expecting a major cold spell this weekend, in Israel, the almond trees are already blossoming at this time, even though it has been snowing in Jerusalem this past week. And as we will see, this holiday began as a way to mark the age of the trees and their production in order to comply with God's command to tithe of the fruit of the trees. So in reality, this is actually the perfect time to celebrate this holiday. Not all of the sages originally agreed on the date, however. Rabbi Shammai taught that the first day of the month of Shabbat was the new year for trees, while Rabbi Hillel placed it on the 15th of the month, and ultimately Hillel won out, which is why we celebrate on the 15th. Additionally, this is the day when the sap begins to rise through the tree, so we actually celebrate the new year for trees when the fruit is not yet visible on the branches. Put another way, we can't see the fruit yet, but we are celebrating the process of growth itself, and most of this process we can't see because it is beneath the surface of the ground. In other words, we are celebrating our anticipation of and thanking God for his provision in faith of his blessing. This is also the day when the trees are no longer nourished by the previous year's rains. Winter is the rainy season in Israel, and this is the marking of the time when the new rains come, the tree is now being nourished by the, new, the rain of the new year. One teaching holds that when we look at the trees, we are meant to think of ourselves in that same place, between the past and our future, to open up ourselves more to opportunities for growth as the sap rises and the new waters flow. But what does that have to do with those of us who are not in the land of Israel? Why would we want to celebrate a holiday that's so specific to Eretz Yisrael? We find that answer in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 1, which declares, Happy is the one who has not walked in the advice of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Torah of Adonai, and of his Torah he meditates day and night. He will be like a planted tree. He will be like a planted tree, catch that, over the streams of water producing its fruit during its season. Its leaf never droops, but in all he does, he succeeds. And we'll talk more about man and tree comparison later. But we see in this passage from God's word that he promises we will be like a tree planted by living water, bearing fruit and not overtaken by worries and therefore wither. But instead, we will prosper when we intentionally walk in his ways. Put another way, intentional, God-centered actions bring God-blessed results. So there's a lot that we non-Israelis can learn from this holiday about how to conduct our lives. Consider this. I don't think it's an accident that we frequently speak of being rooted as people. We are rooted in our communities. We are rooted in our faith and so forth. Both children and the results of our efforts are called fruit. 
This is the same terminology we use of trees. So there are actually a lot of parallels between our lives and the lives of trees. And consider this, just as a tree needs to be rooted in order to grow and flourish, so do we. Whether it is as part of our family, our community, or our relationship with the Lord, we must have roots that go down deep and are nourished if those relationships are to become and remain healthy. We often refer to the Torah, God's instruction of how to conduct our lives, as the tree of life. Living by its precepts results in our producing the good fruit of righteousness. Scripture tells us, tells us in Leviticus 19.23 that God commanded, when you enter the land of Israel, you shall plant all kinds of trees for food. But there is more to trees than just producing food. A tree is a promise. It is an intention. It is hope. Trees are not just for oneself, but they ensure a future and a hope for others as well. According to the rabbis in Midrash, Tanhuma Kiddushim, even if you find the land full of good things, you should not say, we will sit and not plant. Rather, be diligent in planting. Just as you came and found trees planted by others, you must plant for your children. A person must not say, I am old, how many years will I live? Why should I get up and exert myself for others? I'm going to die tomorrow. You must not excuse yourself from planting. As you found trees, plant more, even if you are old. Good words to live by. In addition to planting trees, there's something else that is important to our discussion about this holiday. God created everything and commanded us to care for it. And that includes the environment, which is where this holiday really stands out. Unfortunately, many believers have been so put off by the anti-religious sentiment of environmentalism that they don't know how to respond to the command to care for the earth. So where do we draw the line? How do we respect and even care for nature without falling victim to the religion of Mother Nature? But guess what? Taking care of our environment is very biblical. Genesis 1.28 tells us that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then he commanded God to work with him in managing the animal kingdom. And in Genesis 2.15, he went even further. The Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word translated as keep is actually the Hebrew word shamar, which means to guard or protect. So we are to rule, but in a way that cares for and protects God's creation. Put another way, we are to use the world in such a way that it sustains us and benefits us, but also in a way that protects God's creation. So it's there for our enjoyment, for our use, but we've got to take care of it or it won't be. If you've been part of the Messianic movement for any length of time, you are, you've probably heard the term tikkun olam, which really means repairing the world. It essentially means to continue the work that Adam set out to do at creation. And the holiday of Tu Bishvat can play a large part in tikkun olam. 
It's an important concept, and in fact, we even see it mentioned in the Elenu liturgical prayer that says, therefore, we will hope in you, O Lord, our God, to see quickly the majesty of your strength, to cause idolatry to pass from the earth, and the idols will be utterly cut down to repair the world, Tikkun Olam, in the kingdom of Shaddai. It is the idea that we are preparing the world for the Messianic era. Did you ever think of that? God himself will finally complete the healing process, but we are to help prepare the world for that time by doing our best with God's help to begin the work of restoration now in our lifetimes. This concept of tikkun olam fits perfectly within the context of caring for our environment. When we care for God's earth, we are, first of all, continuing Adam's work of guarding and keeping God's creation. And we are also undoing and repairing some of the damage that fallen mankind has already inflicted upon us. In other words, we're actively performing tikkun olam. The Apostle Peter tells us that when we live lives of holiness and godliness, we are actually, quote, hastening the coming of the day of God, end quote. This is very much like the idea of tikkun olam. When we bring healing to the earth, it is just one more step, not only in preparation for, but in actually quickening the second coming of Yeshua. It should therefore not come as a surprise that there are a number of verses teaching us to care for the environment, and I'd like to take a quick look at just a few of those right now. Deuteronomy 20, verses 19 and 20. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, making war against it to capture it, you are not to destroy its trees by swinging an axe at them. For from them you may eat, so you shall not chop them down. For it is the tree of the field, excuse me, for is the tree of the field human that it should enter the siege before you. You may destroy and chop down only the trees that you know are not trees for food, so that you may build siege equipment against the city that is making war with you until its downfall. Notice the command not to destroy. When we see that permission was given to cut down non-fruit-bearing trees in order to build siege equipment, that tells us that the destruction of something must be for a constructive purpose, such as cutting down trees to build something. Same thing can be said with animals. The scriptures permit us to kill them to use them as food, but not for the sole purpose of killing, just for the sake of killing. And even when we're killing them for food, God prescribed a specific method to prevent unnecessary suffering by the animals. Let's look at Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. The resting of the land is repeated in the 50th year as well, which is the Jubilee year. This teaches us that the earth ultimately belongs to our creator. There are also scientific benefits for the land because a sustained period of rest will insult, result in an increase in produce. We see that practiced here in the U.S. by some farmers because it provides an opportunity for the land to replenish its nutrients, thus bringing benefit to future crops. If you just keep planting year after year after year, you deplete the soil of its nutrients and your crops grow smaller and smaller. Allowing the land to rest for a full year also means practicing the discipline of patience and trust in God's provision. 
and learning that the earth is not an inexhaustible resource. So there's a spiritual lesson for us as well. Then there's the command in Deuteronomy 23.13 that teaches us to clean up after ourselves. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. While helping the environment, the proper disposal of waste and pollution is also a good sanitation practice and something commanded by God. Interestingly, in Numbers 35, we see the requirement of what amounts to a 2,000 cubit green belt around the Levitical cities. These open fields were never to be sold, and they belonged to the Levites in perpetuity. Thus, the Torah taught about going green long before it was trendy. And finally, we all know that we are told to love our neighbor as ourselves. By taking care of the environment and allowing future generations to enjoy it, we are demonstrating our love to our future brothers and sisters. It boils down to this. In God's Torah, man is called to care for God's creation and to take care of that which God has given us. And the Torah is the ultimate key for bringing tikkun olam to the earth. So now that we understand a little bit about the holiday's history, what it is, I want to talk about why the ancient sages felt we needed a new year for trees. And to understand that, we have to look back to the first and second temple era. Not only did the ancient people sacrifice animals at the temple, but they also brought grain and food offerings as well as a tithe on the fruits of their trees and the produce of their fields. Especially the seven species for which Israel is renowned in Deuteronomy chapters, uh, chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. And those included wheat and barley, vines, figs and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. But there was a problem. The scripture commanded that the tithes from these plants should be brought, but it didn't tell them when they should be brought. It didn't give them an exact date. That Raise some questions. Should the people tithe when the produce is first produced? Or should they wait till the end of the harvest season? And what about all these plants that produce at different times of the year? So the Talmud established a simple solution. Said the sages, a tree which began the fruiting process before Tu Bishvat is tithed with the accounts of the preceding year. After Tu Bishvat is tithed, it is tithed with the accounts of the next year. So what this means is that the day of Tubishvat determined which produce from the fruits, fruit trees and the orchards was to be brought to the temple each year. If those trees produced before the holiday, the tithe would occur in the preceding year. If it's after the holiday, it goes into the following year. Rabbi Hillel wrote that the date of Shabbat 15th was chosen because most of the annual rain in Israel falls before that date. And consequently, the fruits of those trees that blossom after the 15th are considered to belong to another year for the levying of tithes and for the prohibition of what is referred to as orla. So I want to talk a little bit about this concept of orla for a few moments because it's pretty interesting. Leviticus 19.23 tells us that when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, you are to consider their fruit as forbidden. Three years it will be forbidden to you. It is not to be eaten. God commanded that the people not eat of the fruit of the tree for three years after it was planted. This prohibition is referred to as a prohibition on orla fruit. And that word orla literally means uncircumcised. 
because the people were not to eat fruit produced by a tree during the first three years after its planting. Since the Hebrew word orla literally means uncircumcised, the literal reading of that verse would be this. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as uncircumcised. For three years you are to consider it uncircumcised. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat its fruit. In this way your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. And variations of that root word orla are used throughout the Tanakh with reference to people and the uncircumcision of their hearts, their minds, and their ears. Earlier we mentioned that there are a number of passages in the Bible that compare people with trees, so let's talk about those for a few minutes. Psalm 1-3 is one of them. He will be planted, he will be like a planted tree over streams of water producing its fruit during its season. Its leaf never droops, but in all he does, he succeeds. Jeremiah 17:8. For he will be like a tree planted by the waters, spreading out its roots by a stream. It has no fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It does not worry in a year of drought, nor depart from yielding fruit. Isaiah 65:22. They will not build and another inhabit, nor plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Then there's Jude 12. These people are hidden rocky reefs at your love feast, shamelessly feasting with you, tending only to themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, fruitless trees, talking about people, in late autumn, doubly dead, uprooted. So our comparison to trees is important, but it's often overlooked. And we see that concept in the art scroll Humash. The comparison of people to trees has far-reaching significance. Just as trees must grow branches, twigs, flowers, and fruit to fulfill their purpose, so man is put on earth to be productive. That is why the sages refer to the reward for good deeds as fruit. The fruit of man can also be the physical fruit of his own body. As in Psalms 128.3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive saplings around your table. Children are compared to olive saplings to communicate the unique uh, potential of the Jewish people. As the Midrash states, just as olive oil brings light to the world, so do the people of Israel bring light into the world. And this brings to mind John Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And indeed, we all know Yeshua brought light into this world. And put in more simple terms, this means that olive oil, which comes from a tree, brings forth light. And light was brought into the world by the Jewish people when our Messiah was born. So again, we see a connection between man and trees. And guess what? Each Shabbat, we open this ark, we put the Torah scrolls back into the ark, and what do we do? We recite Proverbs chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Not only are people compared to trees in the Bible, but so is the Torah. Yeshua was the living Torah. And as his disciples, we are to be rooted in him, just as he is rooted in the Father. 
Therefore, the more we study and learn Torah, the more we know Yeshua. Let's look at Proverbs 27, 18 for a second. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever takes care of his master will be honored. Rabbi Yochanan commented on this verse. What is the meaning of he who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit? Why is the Torah compared to a fruit tree? Figs on a tree do not ripen all at once, but a little each day. Therefore, the longer one searches in the tree, the more figs he finds. So too with Torah. The more one studies, the more knowledge and wisdom one finds. It's pretty wise words. That's why we place such a focus on studying God's word here at Congregation Beth Adonai. The more we study, the more we learn about him. And the more we learn about him, the more we come to know him. So if you're not currently participating in one of the afternoon classes, I strongly encourage you to do so. Think about a relationship that's important to you in your life. It could be a spouse, it could be a close friend, it could be a family member. You spent time with that person, getting to know that person, to know what that person likes, what that person dislikes, who that person is. That allowed you to really know that person, and that's what created that intimate relationship. And it's the same with our Creator. We have to spend time with Him in order to know Him. And we do that by studying His Word and spending time in prayer with Him. So I hope you're beginning to understand the important significance of this holiday. So, you may be wondering if it's so important, why do we not hear a whole lot about it? Why is it not better known? And I want to talk about that. Prior to the destruction of the Second Temple, which occurred in 70 AD, Tubishvat was a very important day. With the people separating their tithes according to the instructions established by the sages in God's word. However, after the Romans destroyed the temple, Judaism changed course in many ways in order to adapt to the absence of their beloved temple. The importance of the 15th of Shavuot got lost in that process, and we actually find no evidence of any kind of custom associated with it from that time up until the Middle Ages. And that makes sense since sacrifices were no longer practiced after the loss of the temple. They were replaced by prayers and that eliminated the need for this holiday. But then, after 16th centuries, devout Jews from the Galilean village of Safed came up with a new custom for Tubishvat, the implementation of a Passover-like Seder service as a way to bring the fruits of our lips as praise offerings before the Lord. It included a Haggadah with prayers, scripture readings, a review of the tithing laws, and even the drinking of four cups of wine. Sound familiar? It became very popular with the Sephardic community and eventually found its way into the European Jewish expression as well. The Seder continued to evolve until the modern state of Israel came into being in 1948. So I want to talk about the significance now of Israel's reestablishment. And then we'll look at the components of this Seder. Jewish Zionists began to plan for a return to the land in the mid-1800s because some of them had great concern and foresight of a possible coming European Holocaust, which we know, unfortunately, did happen. Men like Theodore Herzl and Heim Wiseman took heed of the warnings and took the first steps toward obtaining land for the resurrected Jewish nation. During this same period, the Jewish National Fund was founded which collected money from Jewish people around the globe in order to purchase land that would remain in public ownership 
based on Leviticus 25:33, which states that the land shall not be sold forever. With the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, many expressions of Judaism were modified again, especially those laws dealing with the land, the produce of the land, and the requirement of Jews who live in Israel. The intent was to literally fulfill the scriptures to the fullest extent possible. For the first time, and this is exciting, for the first time in almost 2,000 years, Jewish people from all nations came to inhabit a desolate land and they were able to fulfill biblical prophecy. Because of the command in Leviticus 19.23 to plant when the people went into the land, planting trees became one of their first obligations. Many believed that the birth of the new nation signified a return to Eden. By planting trees, they were expressing their gratitude to God for the gift of the land and its good food. Tubishvat was the logical day for such planting, and therefore it was designated as such. As I said earlier, a tree is a promise, and it's a promise for future generations because it creates a tie to the land. The first Israeli generation of our time now had an identity with their forefathers and a sense of national pride and practice to hand down to their children, further solidifying their relationship with past and future generations. These actions were so important to the Jewish people that the Midrash states, even if we are in the act of planting trees and the Messiah comes, we should first finish planting our tree and then greet the Messiah. Now, I don't know that I'd necessarily agree with that, but that just shows you how important it was to them. They took it very seriously. Thus, the new nation decided that trees for both fruit and shade be planted with urgency and great fanfare. Annual, highly spirited tree planting ceremonies were instituted that included marching bands and banners, along with thousands of people carrying young trees as they sang and danced their way to the hillside. Even today, decades later, almost one-seventh of the entire population of the state of Israel goes to the countryside to plant saplings on this day. These exuberant and festive celebrations ensured that babies born in the land would grow up with happy memories and excitement at the mere mention of the holiday of Tu Bishvat. So important is the planting of trees to the Jewish nation that another ritual that has developed is planting trees to honor a loved one or special times in our lives. For example, trees are planted in honor of loved ones who have passed away, or even life cycle events such as school graduations, going into the army, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, or any other day that is special to you that you want to um, declare thanks to God for giving you something. Even people who will never have the opportunity to travel to Israel can participate in, by sending money to purchase a sapling, and then a child in Israel will actually plant that sapling for you on Tu Bishvat. I mentioned a few moments ago that people in the diaspora also participate in this holiday. Obviously, since they're not in the land, their celebration will be a little different. So I want to talk about how they can celebrate. Jews outside of Israel tend to thrive more on structure in minor observances, such as Tu Bishvat. The details depend on each particular community and its needs. The Talmud reminds us that there aren't any specific laws or halakha regarding this day. So Jewish congregations are actually strongly encouraged to adapt the celebrations as they see fit. Rabbi David Feinstein states in his book, The Jewish Calendar, that it is customary to eat fruits of this day, especially fruits for which Eretz Israel is renowned. 
Additionally, one should try to obtain a fruit one has not eaten that season in order to recite the Shehekianu blessing. Shehekianu is a common Jewish prayer that is said to celebrate special occasions and it's said by one who is thankful for new and unusual experiences. This blessing has also been recited for more than 2,000 years, so our Messiah undoubtedly would have recited it himself. We also recite it during the High Holy Days, so I'm sure you've all heard it. In Hebrew, it is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaAlam Shehekianu V'Kiyamanu V'Higiyanu Lazman HaZeh, which translates into English as Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has granted us life, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this occasion. And Jonathan Satel has a beautiful song based on the Shekianu, if you've ever heard that one. In order to eat these fruits, the people have to order the Israeli fruit from their local market, which takes purpose and planning. So it isn't something you decide, oh, I'm going to do this tomorrow night and I'll have fruit. No, you have to plan in advance. And as I said, people in the diaspora, they tend to really go for that structured, so they'll plan ahead and, and they'll have it ready. Now, another way people both in Israel and outside of the land can participate is a special Seder, which we referenced a few moments ago. You may find it interesting to know that more than half of the Jewish people in the U.S. actually participate in some kind of Seder on Tu B'Shvat. Did you know that? More than half. That's a much larger number than typically eat Israeli fruit on any other day of the year. These seders are most often celebrated as community rather than in individual households. And in addition to participating in a seder, many diaspora Jews also donate money to have trees planted on their behalf. So that have two ways of celebrating. The seder, something that they physically do. The other is send the money and let someone plant a tree on their behalf. So why a seder? In the book of Genesis, we see God at work creating. He creates the first man and woman, and they were given explicit commandments. Okay? Eat from all the trees of the garden, but not to eat from one specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were told to eat these fruits. And we all know the story. They disobeyed the second commandment, and they ate from that forbidden tree, bringing sin into the world. So the first sin was actually a violation of the dietary laws that God gave them. And on a simplistic level, the holiday of Tu B'Shvat gives us an opportunity to correct that sin by eating of the foods that God commanded to eat. Fulfilling that first commandment, and a special Seder is the perfect, perfect form to do so. In fact, Rav Zeta Hakohin, who was a Hasidic Rebbe who lived in Poland from 1823 to 1900, explained that at our Tu B'Shvat table, we are reenacting what life was like for Adam and Eve before their sin, when they were fruitarians. When we sit before our Tu B'Shvat spread, our table filled with fruits of every sort, it is as if we have returned to the Garden of Eden. And we're fulfilling that one explicit positive commandment that we received in the garden to eat of the fruit of the trees. Like the Passover Seder, the Tu B'Shvat Seder follows a specific order and is divided into four parts, with each part incorporating a cup of wine and a specific fruit. Each cup of wine changes color to correspond to the changing seasons. One person can lead the Seder or participants can take turns leading. As each fruit and wine are discussed, the descriptions of them are read aloud. And as 
as each one of them are being considered and blessed, that object should be held by the reader. After each blessing, the participants taste the fruit, sip the wine, whichever is applicable. Whether they're blessing the fruit, they would taste of it. If they bless the wine, they drink the wine. It typically starts out with the bowl of water, the washing of the hands, and I think you are familiar with all that, so we'll skip that part for the sake of time. But then after the hand washing ceremony, we move into the wine and the fruits. The reader begins by quoting Genesis 1.11, and God said, let the earth put forth grass, herb yielding seed, and fruit bearing fruit after its own kind, wherein is the seed thereof on the earth. And the reader may make some additional comments, but then moves on to the wine and the fruit. With the first cup of wine, we see white wine or white grape juice. And it symbolizes winter, reminding us of God's energy that infused the creation process with initial life. And then the first blessing is said, which is the typical blessing over the wine, Baruchatai Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'alam Barei Peri Hagafen. The reader then continues by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 10. For Adonai your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths springing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land wherein you shall eat without scarceness, you shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig brass. And you shall eat and be satisfied and bless God for the good land which is being given unto you. Then we move on to the first fruit, and that fruit is hard on the outside and soft on the inside. Walnuts, coconuts, almonds, pistachios, hazelnuts, brazil nuts, or pecans. And that hard shell symbolizes the protection that the earth gives us and reminds us to nourish the strength and healing power of our own bodies. Then the blessing is said over that fruit. Barukatai Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Halam, Barei Pari Ha'etz. Blessed are you, source of all life, creator of the fruit of the tree. Then we move on to the second cup of wine. That one is mostly white with a little red mixed in to symbolize the changing of the seasons and a reminder of early spring when the thawing from winter begins. We then see the same blessing and then Deuteronomy 28:36, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land and the fruit of your cattle and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be in your basket and your kneading trowel. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Then we see that second fruit, which is soft, and it has a pit in the center. Could be olives or dates. Could be peaches, apricots, cherries, plums, and so forth. This symbolizes the life-sustaining power that emanates from the earth. It reminds us of the spiritual and emotional strength that is within each of us. We may find feelings hidden within, like the fruit with pits inside. Then we see the blessing over the fruit set again. Then we move on to the third cup. The third cup of wine is mostly red with just a little white mixed in, again symbolizing the changing of the seasons. It reminds us that as the land becomes warmer and the colors of the fruits deepen as they ripen, so too we become warmer and more open. And we see that the blessing over the wine set again. And then Genesis 2-7 is recited. 
Then God formed the human from the dust of the earth and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living soul. Then we go to the third fruit. That one is soft throughout and completely edible. It could be figs, grapes, raisins, carobs, strawberries, apples, pears, or berries. This type of fruit symbolizes God's omnipresence and our own inextricable ties with the earth. The blessing of the fruits repeated, after which a dinner follows, just as with the Passover Seder. And typically it's a vegetarian fare. And we put all these fruits around and we taste of the fruits during the meal. Then after dinner, we move on to the fourth cup of wine. And there's a couple of different ideas about this fourth cup of wine. But it is deep red. So it's all red, no white mixed in. And one of the theories holds that it represents the full bloom of nature before the cold winter. As nature expends its last bit of energy, a full cycle is completed, and no fruit is eaten this time because the world cannot be represented by any fruit. Now, the second thought on this one is, again, that the cup is all red, but this group consumes fruits. And they read Exodus 3.2, And the angel of God appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the middle of the bush. And Moses looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. If a fourth fruit is consumed, it should have a tough skin on the outside, but sweet fruit within. And that could be something like a mango, a banana, an avocado, a sabra, which is a dessert pear. This fruit symbolizes the mystery of the world and our study of Torah. It represents how we are constantly seeking to uncover the secrets of the Torah and are continually nourished by her fruits, just as we have to remove that tough skin on the outside in order to be nourished by the sweet fruit inside. So that's the Tubishvat Seder in a nutshell. No pun intended there. <laughs> we spoke earlier about the deep spiritual meaning of Tubishvat and the concept of Tikkun Olam. By participating in Tubishvat, we ourselves can participate in Tikkun Olam, as we talked about, repairing the world. Because when we plant trees, we help repair the damage we have caused in the world, including the damage to the environment and damage to God's creation. But it's also a way to participate in the prophetic restoration of the land of Israel. Since our future destiny is in the land, some, in some remote way, observing this holiday is like practicing for the coming day when God will send his promised Messiah a second time and the temple will be rebuilt, at which time the Messiah will reign and rule from Jerusalem. But there's even more to consider when we think about Tubishvat. And I hope you can see this. It's a long passage, but I wanted it all up on one screen. Trees are important to God because we humans depend on them to food, for food. We've already looked at this scripture once, and I want to kind of dissect it and talk about it a little more in detail. Deuteronomy 20, verses 19 and 20. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, making war against it to capture it, you are not to destroy its trees by swinging an axe at them. For from them you may eat, so you shall not chop them down. For is the tree of the field human? that it should enter the siege before you. You may destroy and chop down only the trees that you know are not trees for food, so that you may build siege equipment against the city that is making war with you until its downfall. If God is so concerned with trees, then shouldn't we? There's something very interesting in this passage that doesn't translate well into English. Verse 19 of our translations typically reformat the Hebrew into a rhetorical question. 
For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? In Hebrew, however, the text literally reads, the man is a tree of the field. And this raises a dilemma, and our translators don't know what to do with it, so they change it. Because we are told not to cut down trees, but then we're allowed to cut down non-fruit trees. Hmm. So if a man is a tree, what does that mean? The Talmud offers the following explanation. Thus said Rabbi Yochanan, what is the meaning of the passage, the man is a tree of the field? Is a man really a tree of the field? It is also written in the same verse, you may eat from them and you shall not cut them down. And further on in verse 20 it is written, you shall destroy and cut down. How are these contradicting statements reconciled? If the disciple is a worthy fellow, learn or eat from him and do not shun him or cut him down. But if he is not worthy, do not learn from him, shun him, shut him down, shun him and cut him down. Okay, so it makes sense. The man is a tree, if he's worthy, listen to what he says. If he's not, forget it. And this aligns beautifully with Yeshua's words in John chapter 15, verses 2 and verse 6. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The fruit Yeshua speaks of here is the commandments. Thus, the disciple that bears the fruit of obedience to God is contrasted to the disciple that does not, that is cut down, just as a tree. Then there's Yeshua's parable from Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, that's very similar. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. The vine keeper represents Yeshua, who urges us on to repentance and good deeds. If we bear fruit, we are like the fruit in Deuteronomy 20, the fruit trees in Deuteronomy 20 that are not to be cut down. If we do not repent and bear fruit, however, we are fit for the axe and the fire. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip some of this. Um, There's an added dimension to this concept of man as a tree. One of Yeshua's favorite titles for himself was the son of man. Since Deuteronomy 20:19 uses the same definitive form, the man, when comparing human beings to trees, we can also understand this concept to refer messianically to Yeshua, the man, as a tree of the field. Taking this a step further in Luke 23:31, as he was on his way to be crucified, Yeshua referred to himself as a green tree when speaking to the mourning women of Jerusalem. If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Had you ever thought of Yeshua as being a green tree? As Yeshua carried his cross on his shoulders, he referred to himself as the green tree. Just as Psalm 1 speaks of the righteous man planted like a tree by streams of living water. And Psalms 
52.8 says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Yeshua was the green tree, the righteous man that bore the fruit of righteousness. He was nevertheless cut down like a wicked man. As he put it, if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if this is what happens to a righteous man, consider how much worse it will be for the wicked. And this passage alludes to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 47 and 48. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you, and it will consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Ezekiel is comparing men to trees, and he's talking about a coming judgment that will befall Israel, in which both the righteous and the wicked would be swept up. The righteous are the green trees, the wicked the dry trees. Yeshua, as I said, was the green tree, and we are like saplings that have been planted by his seed. If we are truly his, we will bear fruit and remain in the courts of God. God has placed each of us on this earth at this time in history for a specific purpose. It's up to us to grow where we have been planted. And we're to produce fruit for this world. We're to study God's word. We're to be obedient. We're to reach others with his gospel. And we're to practice tikkun olam, repairing the world, right where we are. This is what he seeks from each and every one of us. So I hope I've made the case that there is indeed an important lesson for us to learn from this holiday. But to strengthen my position, I want to share with you five good reasons that First Fruits of Zion gives for celebrating this holiday. First, Yeshua recognized it through his attachment to the temple offering. And let me explain what I mean by that. When the second temple stood in Jerusalem, the 15th of the month of Shabbat was the day designated for the tithes from the trees, from the fruit of the trees. Yeshua, as an obedient first century Jewish person, would absolutely have participated in the temple offerings, and he would have been trained in the temple offerings, the laws and the practices of his time, and that included the Tubishvat offerings. So we can be pretty certain he also obeyed that. Although the sacrifices were suspended due to the destruction of the temple approximately 40 years after his death, we today can offer the fruits of our lips as a memorial to the commandments. This can serve as a connection to our Messiah, and it can be done through reading the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. We can plant a tree, or we can participate in a two Bishvat Seder, as I spoke about earlier. Second reason, two Bishvat provides an opportunity to tithe and give to the needy. And we see throughout scripture the importance of giving to those in need. And the overreaching theme of tithes and specifically tithing produce brings to mind the general idea of giving from our own sustenance to sustain others. It has become a traditional practice within Judaism to provide food tithes or monetary gifts to the needy on this day. The third reason, Tu Bishvat provides an opportunity to thank God for his faithfulness to the land. We have been blessed to see the reestablishment of Jerusalem and Israel. That's a great miracle. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. 
This should cause us to stop and think about God's faithfulness to Israel and his covenant promises to us. Because we have seen a fulfillment of scripture in our lifetimes, that should bring recognition and words of praise to the Father to the forefront of our minds. What better day of the year to specifically bless him for his faithfulness than the day on which all his people are rejoicing in the miracle of the land? Fourth, it is important for all believers to connect with Israel and support Zionism. Even if you are not Jewish, it is important to connect with the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel because it is important for us to love what God loves. Isaiah 40 verse 1 implores us to comfort my people, God's people. Now more than ever, we non-Jewish believers need to stand alongside Israel and the Jewish people so that atrocities like the Holocaust will never happen again. And if you've been watching the news, you have seen throughout the past few years how anti-Semitism is on the rise. We need to stand up and do something. Fifth, we can prepare the earth for the coming generations. The importance of this reason is clearly explained by the story of Honey. Have anybody ever heard of Honey the Circle Drawer? I'm going to talk about him for just a couple of moments and then we'll close. His story is actually a very popular Tubishvat story. Honey was a Jewish scholar of the first century BC. During that time, a variety of religious movements and splinter groups had developed among the Jews in Judea, with a number of them claiming to be miracle workers in the tradition of Elijah and Elisha one of which was Honi Ha-Ma'agel, who was famous for his ability to successfully pray for rain, so he must have been praying as we got the rain. According to the legend, on one occasion when God did not send rain well into the winter, which is the rainy season for Israel, Honi drew a circle in the dust, stood inside it, and informed God that he would not move until it rained. When it began to drizzle, Honi told God that he was not satisfied and expected more rain. It then began to pour. He explained he wanted a calm rain, at which point the rain calmed to a normal rain. And there's another story about honey and a carob tree, which is really relevant to our discussion this morning. Once Honey, the circle drawer, was walking on the road and saw a man planting a carob tree. Honey asked, how many years will it take before this tree will bear fruit? The man answered, 70 years. Honey asked him, are you so healthy that you will live 70 years to eat its fruit? And the man replied, I found the world full of carob trees when I came into it. As my children planted for me, so I will plant for my children. And the basic teaching of Honey is encapsulated in Proverbs 13.22 in our Bibles, which states, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And with that, we're going to wrap up our teaching. The bottom line is this. We are caretakers of this earth, and we are called to provide for our children. Tuvishvat is a celebration that helps us to do this. And what better way than to plant trees in the land of Israel and enjoy the fruit of that labor, especially since the land is our ultimate destiny. Think about it. And as I said earlier, it's not a biblically mandated holiday, so there's not a lot of law, there's really no law about what you have to do and how you do it. So you can feel free to customize it, make it to your personal, to your own personality, your own needs, and enjoy it. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for the rain that you're sending to nourish the earth. We want to thank you for this beautiful Shabbat day, for the time to fellowship together, to study your word, to focus on you, to set aside all our cares of the past week. We pray that you would help us to understand your spiritual truths through your message 
And Father, that we would indeed, tomorrow night when this holiday takes effect, that we would celebrate it, Father, in a way that is pleasing to you and really stop and think about the true spiritual implications. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.